1: Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Right-Sighted. You know, nothing shakes you to your core like laying on top of your children as bullets are flying around you or hearing your child say, Things like why are they trying to kill me or are we going to die tonight? Um, Hearing that out of the mouth of a 12 year old
0: And it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Hey, movers, what's going on? Welcome back to another episode of Moving Past Murder. I'm your host, Collier Landry, and what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? on? Well, uh, what was going on is it was the 4th of July weekend here in the United States, we celebrated all things with backyard barbecues, parades, fireworks, time with family and friends. And unfortunately, what is appearing to be somewhat of a tradition in this country, mass shootings, um, it is very, very sad. We're going to talk about that this episode, but first I want to give a shout out to all of you guys that have been listening and tuning in every week to the podcast. You're really helping me grow it. This is a labor of love and uh, just having your support via social media, listening to the podcast my supporters on TikTok, uh, Instagram. Those of you that come to my Instagram lives every week, 11 a.m. Pacific 2 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesdays. Uh, thank you all for your support. And for those of you that support me on Patreon, Uh, patreon.com forward slash call your Landry. If you want to join, if not, that's okay too. Uh, I just appreciate the support, getting the word out there about the podcast because it helps it grow and make this a thing that I really love to do. So I appreciate it. Just want to say that. Um, speaking of, I read every week, a letter from one of my listeners and audience members, just like you. And this week's letter comes from Megan ping. And she says, just another weirdo who stumbled upon your story via podcast name, drop, then the documentary. I'm sorry for the virtual nature. I just wanted to say a couple of things. Maybe they will resonate. I have found it impossible to grieve for someone who wasn't what they were supposed to be. It's like trying to grieve a shell or a ghost. I'm not sure what people are supposed to do when things were or aren't what they were supposed to be. I think that is the continuous struggle. When someone dies, we mourn little by little. We somewhat move on. We remember always, but ultimately we go on. I think we, when we mourn a supposed to be somehow there is always an empty spot inside of us, an empty chair at the table that is supposed to be filled, but hasn't been, we feel grateful for those who try to fill the spot, but we know it's supposed to be someone else. How do you grieve a supposed to grieve a title, grieve an, an idea or image? Well, Megan, that is a. Very, very loaded question. I think that I guess in my case, maybe the supposed to be was my mother and it ended up being, you know, uh, my, my wonderful adopted mother or my adopted parents when I was supposed to have natural parents, maybe that's what you're alluding to. Or maybe it's supposed to be, uh, what should have been my father, but instead is a sociopath and a narcissist who murdered my mother. Um, so I'm going to take this in two parts. One of the things is, yeah, this is a very challenging thing that I had to work through a lot in my life because I think when I was initially getting used to the fact that look, you know, this was after the trial and I remember being on like a summer vacation in Chautauqua, New York and my, uh, foster parents had wanted to go there and they basically played family. And I was left to sort of just do stuff by myself, which was fine with me because I just wanted to be away from Ohio. And one of the things while I was walking around Chautauqua, which was a lovely city, by the way, or a lovely little town in upstate New York. And uh, it was really cool. But um, one of the things I was thinking about is the loss of my mother and obviously the loss of my family unit, but mostly my mother. And not knowing if I was going to be adopted or where I was going or if I was going to go in an orphanage or if I was, you know, I obviously wasn't going with any relatives because they didn't come forward. So I, I was sort of trying to reconcile with all that. And I think for me, I knew that my mother was never going to be around again in like the physical presence. Right. And I remember seeing this woman on the street and I remember my mother used to wear Chanel number five. And I remember my, my this scent. And then I saw a woman's back of her head with a blonde ponytail. And I remember running after it because I thought that this was my mom. And, even though I knew it wasn't realistic. I just kind of had this thing and then she disappeared. It was really, perhaps I was imagining it, you know, a kid kind of, you know, a kid who's growing up trying to deal with trauma of that magnitude. I mean, of course you might have, I don't know, some visions, <laughs> if you will. But I just remember thinking that I will always hold her memory and everything that we did together, but that is the past in a way of like, you know, my mother is always going to live through me and nobody is going to replace her. And I'm not going to blame or feel bad for loving someone else in her place, whether that's a, a new parental figure or whether that's a mentor in my life or whether later on in life, if I was to be engaged in a relationship and I, and I had a woman that I loved and you know, a lot of men, men or boys that become men do seem to struggle with the image of their mother and, in and, in and their spouses and, and things of that nature. So I really, at that time was just thinking like, what would my mother really want? Would my mother want me to sit and wallow or be upset or be sad and not embrace a better life. Or would she want me to be happy and embrace a better life because she knows that that wouldn't dishonor her. Um, and that was the conclusion that I made at that point, because I just was like, I'm not doing anything wrong by just being a kid and, and moving past this. Right. So the flip side. Someone who was supposed to be there would have been my father and my father made a choice that changed the course of my entire life and my family's life. And for him, I was grieving in a different way. And it was, I was grieving not only through anger at at what happened, but I was really grieving of like, wow, dude, you just fucked up everything. And I realized it at that young age, I was like the, the magnitude of what he had done. And it's why I became so passionate in doing what I'm continuing to do. Now, I, I started at 11, <laughs> really doing this and it was to really, to, to look at him and grieve like the person that he was not and could not be and chose not to be and understanding that that was okay. And at the same time, you know, I did the same thing in the film, a murder romance, so I'm sitting across from him and talking to him at the table. You know, we finish and I, I get up and I give him a hug and I say, I love you, pop. And I know that's a big moment for a lot of people. It was a big moment for me, but I wasn't really thinking about it because that's just how I feel and I felt sorry for him. And I know that he did so much to destroy things in life for everyone, but I felt sorry for him that he chose to be that person. I don't know. That's my perspective on that. So speaking of making choices. You know, obviously a lot of families went out and made a choice to go to fireworks and parades this weekend and spend time with family and friends. And unfortunately there was just chaos. In this past July 4th weekend, there were shootings across the country. One of which was a mass shooting in Highland park, Illinois. Uh, seven people were killed, dozens injured. The suspect is accused of firing 70 rounds from a high powered rifle down into the crowd before disguising himself as a woman and escaping alongside fleeing victims. A few hours later, police officers were shot when gunshots rang out during the fireworks celebration at Benjamin Franklin Parkway in Philadelphia. Both of these officers were treated and released and these incidents are devastating in the horrifying images from them A reminiscent of the mass shooting in Las Vegas, Nevada, which occurred in 2017. So there a gunman had opened fire uh, on a crowd of people that were attending the harvest festival, Jason Aldean was just about ready to take the stage and play some music for people and 58 people died. This, uh, gentleman fired several semi-automatic rifles or even automatic rifles out of the window of the Mandalay Bay hotel into this crowd down below. And it, I remember when it happened, just being devastated and devastated for the city devastated for the the victims, you know, as a whole, I mean, I've been to Vegas a lot, uh, it's not my favorite place in the world, but I most certainly have had a lot of fun there and. It's always a place that I never thought twice about walking around and you're in big crowds of people in casinos on the strip and never thought anything like that could happen. And I remember when that happened, it just really shook me to my core, almost like nine 11, not quite, but it just felt like such a violation for so many reasons. So, um, on that note today, I have a very special guest. Her name is Stacy Armantrout and Stacy is a survivor of the Vegas shooting, and she's going to talk with us a little bit about her journey, about what happened that day, what she experienced and what her advice is to those who are right now, these families that are grieving at this moment and still when this episode airs on Friday are grieving at this moment for the loss of their loved ones. and. She has advice to share. She's lived through it. She is a very active person. She is there for victims. When victims need support, need help. She hooks them up with, with fellow victims and fellow survivors, uh, to help lift them up and to help answer some questions that they're struggling with. And the armand trouts were, you know, they sustained physical injuries while trying to escape. She was there with her husband and their two daughters. And it was bedlam for that, but she's going to share her story with us. So I'm pleased to welcome to the program. Stacey Armitrout. You know, obviously there was a lot that went on this weekend outside of fireworks. And um, I, I want to thank you for coming on the program and sharing your experience of actually being in a mass shooting. Why don't you share with me your story of how you came? It was the Harvest Festival. Is that correct?
1: Correct. It was the um, Route 91 Harvest Festival here in Las Vegas. Um, we were there i was there with my children um when the mass shooting happened here um so you know it's it's a journey um it was a very scary moment um scary night you know especially being there with my children um you know nothing shakes you to your core like laying on top of your children as bullets are flying around you or hearing your child say Things like, why are they trying to kill me? Or are we going to die tonight? Um, Hearing that out of the mouth of a 12-year-old is, as a parent, as a mother, is your core is to protect your kids, you know? Um, So it's, it's a very traumatic thing to hear and to think about them saying those kinds of things.
0: So where where exactly were you when all this took place? And where, you were, where were you in the crowd? Were you, I believe it, the, he shot into the Jason Aldean concert, is that correct, or? Yes,
1: Jason Aldean had just taken the stage a little bit prior. We weren't in the very front of the crowd, but we weren't all the way in the back. We were kind of like in the middle-ish area. Um, and we were—we had just gone back to our seats. We had, you know, kind of wandered the festival. We had just come back to—we had some um, lawn chairs, and we, had, we were sitting in those lawn chairs when it started.
0: And I would imagine—I mean, for myself, if I was in a situation like that, I—I I, I, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't think that somebody was actually shooting. Was there yeah. a lot of disbelief and, and what, like, as to what was going on?
1: Yeah, and at first, we didn't realize that it was gunshots, you know, Um, and at first, we kind of thought maybe it was fireworks out maybe towards the strip area, Um, because there are housing areas out that way, Um, you know, maybe it was fireworks or something along those lines, um, or I did not realize at first what it was, Um, and I think it took a few minutes for everyone to realize what it was, because it was so unexpected, like, you're at a concert who's going to think that this is going to happen. Sure. You don't go to a concert thinking this is going to happen to you. You don't go to a parade thinking that somebody's going to you know climb a roof and start shooting. It's very unexpected. So it does take a minute to kind of process what's going on. And then once you realize you kind of go into fight or flight mode and your body you're and I think one thing that people have to understand is you don't get a choice whether you're in fight or flight mode your brain mm-hmm. and your body just take over yeah. and it does what it does. And there's no, Oh my gosh, I should have gone into flight mode when I went to freeze or I should have gone into fight. when I... There is, you can't control what you, how you reacted. You can only control your, the aftermath and your process of healing afterwards. There was no right or wrong way for anyone to have reacted that night. No right or wrong way for anybody to have behaved or, done what they did and i think that's a big trigger for a lot of survivors is well why did i run when i should have stayed back and helped or why did i your brain just shuts off and you go into autopilot basically and you don't get a choice you just it, it is what it is
0: sure and and that sort of leads me into my next my next question which is i feel like again people You go back and you reanalyze the situation, right? And you think like, I mean, I, I dealt with a lot of what if, you know, with my father, like, what if I could have, you know, when I heard the scream and then I heard the thuds, what if I had run into the room and tried to save my mother? Well, the, the fact is, is that my mother was most likely already dead and I would have been killed for sure. And for, I think for, for people who. You know, who have been through these types of circumstances they try to feel like oh i could have helped another person but really again you're you have to put your own oxygen mask on you have to look out for yourself and then and try to keep calm too i would imagine
1: yeah you know for me i went into the instinct of my children you know i need to protect my kids i need to you know and i've been through that of, okay well could i have helped somebody else could i have done more to you know but then I have to stop and remember, I can't live in that. You know, you can't because you're gonna bury yourself in that guilt. Um, You know, I don't know, maybe I could have done more, maybe I couldn't have, but at the end of the day, I protected my kids, I got the kids out. And what I can do now is help those that I can help. You know, I may not have been able to help at that moment, but now I can
0: stacy did you or any of your family members did you guys sustain any physical injuries
1: yes ma'am i was injured um i um, had a knee injury that required surgery kind of a blur of what happened that night i know we were running i know i probably tripped over stuff um so somewhere in the process of running and tripping over stuff and getting through you know food trucks and um chairs and picnic tables and stuff like that at the festival somewhere along the line um toward like the meniscus um and a lot of the muscle tissue i tore my knee basically long story short i tore my knee and cartilage and all the fun stuff that go into your knee was tore um and it had to be repaired
0: surgically and how is yeah. the knee doing now
1: um I'm actually doing really good. So I had an amazing surgeon who figured out exactly what it was, um, and took great care of me. And um, so I would say I'm at least ninety-five percent. You know, I'm not hundred percent with my knee. I still have some things here or there, but it's definitely way better than it was um, before.
0: Yeah, you have to work. You have to work through your steps, and then sort of. You have to work through your steps and sort of go back into. Now I can help others. Now I now that I'm coping with this. I mean, obviously you. You know, I, I read an NPR article when you were talking about the you know the Thousand Oaks shooting, which happened, I believe, a year after this, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. um And you know, again, and, and you were holding sort of space for those victims. Those victims, and and trying to show like you can come through this, this circumstance, you're going to be okay. What are some of those things that you, you work with, with survivors and, and, and now in your, in what you're doing?
1: Um, it, a lot of it is, is networking because honestly, the best support I have ever gotten is from a fellow survivors because sometimes it's hard for somebody who hasn't been through that kind of a trauma to understand where I'm coming from. You know, they're like, sure. I, you know, I have always struggled with the guilt of having my children there, for example, Um, and other people who are not familiar with the trauma or that type of situation don't quite understand it. When I'm talking to them, they're kind of looking at me like, why would you feel that way? But when I'm talking to another survivor who is a parent who had their children there, we can relate on that level. We can work through it together. We can build each other. and we can help each other. So a lot of it is just networking with other survivors, letting them know what you're feeling is okay, what you're experiencing is okay, what you're going through, what you're thinking—it's all okay. There's such a stigmatism sometimes with mental illness or mental well-being um, that people—it's not. We keep saying to each other, um, "It's okay not to be okay," because there's such a thing of, "Oh, I can't show that that I'm not okay." A lot of it is just networking with other survivors. Um, you know, I trust Victims First. It's a nonprofit organization that, you know, gets on the ground and helps victims of, of these types of things um, and gets in front of it and helps, you know, make sure that they can get counseling and resources. Because it goes beyond counseling sometimes, you know, there's survivors who struggle so bad they can't leave their home. Well, they lose their job. They lose their everything because they are struggling so bad. So it's just kind of helping to get those resources there, making sure that they have what they need to be able to move forward as well.
0: It's interesting. You talk about the mental health aspect and I feel like, and I was discussing this with my shrink just today, actually, because of what had transpired this past weekend here in the States and. We were talking about, you know, there's a lot of, he was saying, there's a lot of emphasis on when these things occur, a lot of emphasis on mental health and really what it is, is that is all, that is all well and good, more funding for mental health. And, and, and those are, those are healthy things. But he said, one of the things that he finds to be very prevalent with these types of mass shootings, especially is it's more of people with personality disorders that are affected that are people who who are sociopaths that have absolutely no empathy or compassion for other human beings or other human life and yeah. that is how it, when trying to explain it away you know often we say well okay we're not gonna get rid of guns but let's have more funding for mental health but it's more of this awareness of understanding and recognizing these personality disorders and these things that are that are prevalent and one of the things i was you know, formed with the shooter from this past weekend is he um, or they uh, had posted a bunch of YouTube videos, and there was a lot of talk online about their actions, and it wasn't wasn't flagged. And what do you what do you feel like as a survivor and as someone who works with survivors, what the answer is? Because this keeps happening, and it doesn't just happen in the United States. It just happened in the Netherlands, I believe, or in Norway, uh, right, like a week ago.
1: And- you know mental health is is great but it's you're right it's also recognizing those that need you know okay there's there is that personality disorder um or that disconnect you know um it's it's recognizing those and sometimes i think people are afraid to come forward and say hey my son my brother my friend is exhibiting these signs of sociopath or you know they've got no compassion they're afraid to come forward and I think that we need to again it's okay to come forward you need to because you don't know necessarily what they're thinking in the back of their mind you know um you can so I think it's it's we do need to put more emphasis on on figuring out those those things because here's the problem you can control guns all you want you can control weapons all you want a person with ill intent and the intention to hurt and harm somebody else or other people, they're going to find a way, whether they have a gun, a car, a knife, a bomb, they're going to find a way. So it's not, oh, let's take this away or let's take that away. It's how do we work with them? How do we identify those people that are at risk of carrying out these types of things so that we can prevent it. And it's, it's comes down to maybe better training or knowledge of, you know, um, things to recognize, you know, um, maybe it's a mental health exam. If you want to buy a weapon of any sort, a gun, you know, maybe you need to have a a mental health exam, you know, included with that background check. Um, you know, if you have a concealed carry, you go through, a a course and you have to pass it and you have to show that you capable and all those things, mental health exam should be a part of that. And it should be something that would identify those sociopath tendencies and flag it, you know, they're still going to find it on the street somewhere, but it could give us some leverage. Um, get in the schools, you know, some of these start exhibiting these behaviors earlier on in life. Um, get in the schools and be proactive and help the mental health counselors and stuff recognize what they're dealing with early on and maybe that would help too
0: yeah and and you know like you said you can take away weapons or you can take away uh you know a, a car i mean I, I live in santa monica and and in the early 2000s there was a a, a man who was at a being convicted, you know, he drove his car into the Santa Monica farmer's market and took the lives of a significant amount of people just shopping at a farmer's market. And that was a weapon. And, it, you know, it ultimately found out that he was, he had that ill intent, but it's, it's this, uh, you know, the old adage locks are for honest people, right? Like, right. You, know, you don't have the yeah. lock. If you don't believe in the lock, you're, you don't care about the lock. You'll steal the car, you'll steal the, the items, whatever it is. And you can't police this ill intent in a way, or you can't control that by taking away firearms, taking away cars, taking away, you know, knives or weapons or, you know, fireworks or whatever that is. It's, it's more of this fundamental societal root. Um, at least from what I see, I mean, look, my father is a sociopath and a narcissist. And I mean, maybe he exhibited behaviors. I'm sure he did, uh, you know, growing up, but he was a doctor. He was perceived as a healer. And you wouldn't necessarily, I mean, I've come to find out through doing this program, through speaking to people that, you know, ultimately my father, uh, you know, the people like that are drawn to the healing arts, if you will, because they're a healer, they get that satisfaction from what they're doing. And that that plays right into their sociopathy and their narcissism. Right. Mm -hmm. But I feel like people that choose to do these things there are there, there have to be these behavioral patterns that are recognized. I mean, if we can have AI on TikTok to scroll through things that we like that recognizes our patterns, there has to be some sort of intelligence that is, that is going to assist you know, law enforcement and it, or
1: And it's and it's making sure that do you and I as the general public know how to recognize a narcissist, you know, those narcissistic behaviors. Sometimes they're so good at hiding in plain sight that you don't see it. And, you know, I think the more that we put out there, those kinds of symptoms or those kinds of behavioral traits and take the stigma off of that, you know, knowledge is power, you know, as a general public, do they know what to look for? Would you recognize it? Um, You know, you go to work every day and you work beside somebody, do you know how to recognize that behavior in them or do you do you know what to look for do you do you know what that is you know i've talked to people about narcissism before and they looked at me and said what is that yeah what that's again that's some of that mental health acknowledgement and knowledge that needs to be made more mainstream not hidden and it's come a long way i mean it used to be you know shell we went from shell shock with soldiers to now calling it PTSD and, and those types of things. And we've gotten to where people understand it better. Same thing applies with the sociopathic tendencies and those types of things that come on with that.
0: So you're from Las Vegas. That's where you live now. And that's where you. Yeah, I've been here for a number
1: of years, um, okay. I didn't, wasn't born or raised here, but we've, I've been here for um, quite a few years now.
0: Um. So you, this was just an ordinary day. You were taking your kids out to this wonderful concert in your family and it ends in this sort of horror. I mean, from what I understand, nothing like that. I mean, Las Vegas is such a populous place, right? And you have tourists and you have so many, so many people coming through that city, it's such a transient city and in a lot of ways. Right. And. And I say that affectionately. I mean, my, um, ex-girlfriend of many years lives there and was from there. Um, so I've spent a lot of time in Vegas and, you know, there's constant crowds and there's constant interaction with other people when something like that happens, having lived there, not only your personal experience, but how did this, how did this impact the city?
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, and you're right, it was just a normal day. You know, this was the first time I had been in attendance with the Route 91 concert in previous years. Um, this was the first time I'd taken my children. I felt like um, we'd been to a number of concerts, but not, you know, a festival, multi-day festival, just one night concerts. So <clears throat> it was, it, you know, it was the last night. Um, we'd had a great weekend. We were um, ready to enjoy, you know, the final night and kind of close it out and just have that moment. Um, you know, as far as the city, I mean, it is a, yeah, you know, very populous. I don't think that it's kind of deterred anybody from coming, you know, I think that it's just, everybody's kind of, okay, it's something, a one-off random act. Um, So, I don't think, I don't, haven't seen it really affect negatively on the crowds coming in or anything like that. I think that maybe the perspective of how to protect um, those crowds when they do come in um, has changed a little bit. And maybe some strategies, you know, when there are bigger festivals coming to town sure. on how to sure. just kind of beef up security. I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've seen.
0: It's it's such a sticky situation when you have. I mean, I I just remember like driving in to Vegas and you see like the places where you can fire like semi automatic weapons and those rifle ranges, right? Mm-hmm. And all these things, and so it almost that's encouraged, right? It's kind of a part of a tourism sort of fantasy, if you will. Yeah. And then to have something like this happen that's so close to the strip, it was at he was the shooter was in Mandalay Bay, correct?
1: Correct. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of tough to see those things, but at the same time, you have to just take the perspective of, we do live in a tourist town. This is what, um, and I've had this conversation with other people and other survivors is, our livelihoods depend on the tourists coming in. And so you kind of almost have to take that into account as part of your healing, everybody gets upset because you do see those um, gun ranges or those types of things. And I'm like, it's not necessarily, You have to take into account why those are here. You know, it's tourism, it's our livelihoods. You know, yeah, Vegas is when you say Vegas, everything's oh, the strip and all the casinos and stuff. People forget off the strip is houses and schools and, you know, people living day to day grocery stores. And while the tourism drives that ability for us to live here. And so I think we have to just take into account as we, process what happened to us at that harvest festival, the environment we live in, you know, and and where we live and what our main source of income is for Las Vegas, which is the tourism. So, you know, at some point you just kind of have to balance the two and come to the terms within yourself that there's things that are gonna be unsaid or you feel like are being unsaid or maybe not being as visible because the job of the leaders are is to protect the tourism industry without it we wouldn't have a Las Vegas so you just kind of have to balance that you have to come to terms with that in yourself really you know it's not about coming to terms with it anywhere else you have to come to terms with that within yourself and come to accept that that um, and I think that's harder for people who don't live here um, to kind of figure that out because they don't you know they go back to wherever they were from you know um, and they aren't in that environment. So it's a little more difficult for them to kind of, well, why aren't they doing more? Or why don't we hear more? You're not going to, because they're afraid of the down the road of what that's going to impact our livelihood, which is the tourism. So um, you just kind of have to work through that on your own, on your own level and figure that out for yourself.
0: And is that has that become one of your main points of activism when working with others that are that find themselves in these circumstances,
1: yeah. You know, it's one of the things I mentioned. You know, um, sometimes you're not gonna, we're never gonna get all the answers that we want from that night. I'm never gonna get all the answers I want from that night. I still have questions, and I think any survivor that's gone through a mass violence, and you're always gonna have those questions why, why me, why us, why this. And you can drown yourself in that. You can always drown yourself in that. And you can't focus on the why. Why me? Because you're going to drown yourself. You're not going to be able to move forward. You're not going to be able to put it in its place and build from there and move, keep moving forward. If you allow that to keep going. Um, and it's harder done than said. You know, it's easy to say you can't do that. It's a lot harder to actually put that effort in there and do it. We can't change the past. I can't change the fact that I was there. I can't change the fact that my children were there. Um, I can't change the fact, you know, all of us that were there. What I can do is take ownership of my healing and where I'm at and try to move forward and move through the process myself. Um, And just understand, I'm not gonna always have those answers and I have to be okay with that.
0: And you got to put your own oxygen mask on first most important you do
1: you know um and that's you know i took a big step back over the last couple of years because i needed to do that you know i needed to take some time to heal myself in in a lot of different ways and put my own oxygen mask on um because i wasn't going to be any good to anyone if i didn't um and you know i think i'm in a place now where i feel like i have done that um, I will say 4th of July, of course it was yesterday. Um, my daughter, I still have one child living at home. And yesterday was the first time since 1 October, since Route 91. Um, but not only were we able to watch the fireworks, but we actually kind of enjoyed them. Fireworks has always been a trigger point for our PTSD and our trauma. And over the last years, we've been kind of building towards that. Um, but last night we were actually able to enjoy the fireworks and. Yeah, there were some tough moments and there were some, you know, moments where we kind of startled and, but we were able to work through that. And that's the point that I make with everyone is maybe step it and you're going to have setbacks. That's okay, but you can't go backwards. You have to keep making those steps forward, even if they're little steps. Um, And you have to focus on you first, then worry about everything else.
0: So Stacy, would you say that the injuries that you sustained are not? really the physical ones but more of the emotional
1: definitely you know um the 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 emotional impact is is by far greater than the physical
0: so it's always the injuries that you can't see right <laughs> yeah what would you say to the victims and the families that have, that are now dealing with the immediate aftermath of this weekend's violence um from this fourth of july deadly fourth of july weekend which is i'm still in shock myself
1: you know the biggest thing is ask for help you know it's okay to ask for help it's okay to have those moments of doubting yourself doubting everything going on that's okay um give yourself time be gentle with yourself don't get stuck there You know, and something I tell my kids, I've always told my kids too, is we're going to have our moments to break down, but we're not going to unpack and stay there because we're going to pack it back up and keep moving forward. Um, So give yourself time, give yourself grace, because you're going to have those moments. They're going to come at the most unexpected time. Like, you know, you're going to be in the middle of the grocery store and have that moment and just everything's going to flood in. And the next thing you know, you're going to be a hysterical mess. That's perfectly normal, and that's perfectly okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, from one parent to another, of parent who had their children there, you know, I understand what you're feeling of the guilt of my children were there, and I'm supposed to protect my kids. Now they're traumatized. It's not your fault. You had no control over it. And again, it's easier said than done, and it's easier for your brain to tell you, it's easier for my brain to say that than it is for my heart. Because My heart is just like, oh my God, what did I do? I've damaged my children for life. And my brain is like, no, 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 it wasn't your fault. Um, those internal struggles are fine. It does get better. You're never going to be over it. You're never going to get past. You're never going to be to the point where you, it's in the past and you never think about it again. That, that's a myth and... I can't tell you how many people are going to tell you that get past it, get over it. That's not how this works. (laughs) It's always going to be there. It's never going to leave you. Um, but it's going to get easier and it's not going to get easier tomorrow. It's not going to get easier next week. It's been four and a half years and I finally made it through a fourth of July in fireworks, like four and a half years later, I took that step, and there's, other survivors who haven't been able to take that step so it's okay don't compare your progress of healing to somebody else's because it's not it's not a race
0: i say the same it's not thing an, it, it's, it's, it's it's not a, a, it, it's a marathon. it's your
1: individual journey and you have to own your own individual journey um you have a choice here you either make it like let it make you better or let it make you bitter. and don't let it make you bitter. let it make you better use it for the good show that it's not gonna you're not gonna become a bad person or use it as an excuse for bad behavior let it make you better right right you know there's enough ugliness in this world we don't need more so use what you have to shine that light you know
0: Uh, you know I, i a lot of people ask me like how can i keep such a how could I not think that the world is a dark and bleak place with what happened to me? And I, I would say the same thing to you. And I think that it's just, the world is a beautiful place. It's just, you choose your perspective on how you want to look at it. You either let circumstances like this control who you are and take over the rest of your life, or you decide to, to affect change in yourself and the world around you and you give back or you you talk to people or you're that friend for, the, for these people that are going through this immediate trauma. Um, what are some of the things that you've done in, as far as like your specific like activism with this, uh, w- with these shootings and and when this happens, like what are some specific things that you do?
1: You know, I, I'm i um, with my own healing process of, and things that I've been through over the last couple of years. Um, I'm not out in the forefront um, like I was in the beginning. Um, most of what I'm doing is behind the scenes. Um, helping get the word out, you know, um, like victims first, if there's funds that are being raised, um, helping to make sure that the funds go to the victims. That's a huge thing um, that happens where funds raised don't always go to victims. Um, And it should. So helping on that, you know, um, signing letters or petitions as needed, um, being a resource if somebody needs somebody to talk to, uh, you know, just little things that, I call them little, but sometimes they're not, they're bigger things, you know, the 2 a.m. phone call from a certain other survivor who's struggling. That's okay. You know, I can, we can, we'll talk about it. We can work through it together and just be that comfort, you know? Um, so just those little things of just trying to be there and just let them know it's okay and making sure that they have the resources they, that they need and just a support.
0: Yeah. Support is, support is the biggest thing and, and not blaming yourself, uh, because God knows these these, uh, circumstances are well out of our control. Um,
1: Absolutely.
0: Stacy, where can we find you and some of the things that you're doing?
1: Best thing to do is, um, you know, I'm on some of the social media, so I limit, um, I limit my social media. I limit the news. You know, I don't sit down and watch the news just because of my own healing. I need to take that that time. Um, you know, I, you can reach out to me on social media. That's fine. Um, if you need somebody to talk to or just need somebody that understands where you're at, that's I'm available to that. Um, you can contact um, there's social media page, Route Ninety One Family. You can contact through that. We can connect you with other survivors. Maybe somebody that's close to you um, in the area. We can always, you know, use our resources to figure out who lives where. Um, I would say other than that, contact victims first and get in contact with them. They have amazing resources and amazing group of people um, who understand all the inner workings and really get in the forefront of these things on the ground and make sure that people are taken care of.
0: Thank you so much for your time, Stacey Armantrout. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm glad that you finally were able to, to go out and enjoy your first, for, first 4th of July in, in quite so many years.
1: Yeah, it felt good.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm it sure really it did. did.
1: Was,
0: yeah. I'm sure it did. Well, you're proof that you can move past this and you can lead a better life and you can impact the lives of those around you, which is what you're doing. And I commend you for that. Thank you. All right. You too. No, thank you. That's <laughs> <I try>, right. Right. <laughs> right. That's uh, all we can do. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, Stacy Armatrout, thank you so much. Um, and, uh, thank you for coming on the program. You've been great. Awesome. Thank you. Like I said, I remember when the Vegas shootings happened. I've spoken to many people about them, uh, even interviewed people that were there, uh, previously for other projects. Um, 58 people at a concert, just enjoying that. And, you know, there has been a lot of talk about how these things are, you know, uniquely American problem, but there was just a mass shooting in, I believe Finland or Norway. Um, it is happening. And I, as I was saying to, to Stacy during the interview, one of the things I was discussing with psychologist friend of mine is that a, a lot of these things are untreated personality disorders that. And this, this sociopathy that exists and people's general lack of empathy. I wish I knew the answers and I mean, there is a disturbing image and I, you know, I didn't want to mention it to Stacy, but there's a, there's a two year old child that was found with blood all over him at the event this last weekend in Highland park and. Both of his parents died. I don't think there are any words that can describe the pain. And that can describe just... Yeah, yeah, I mean kids too, and I understand he's young, but he's going to grow up without his parents. And I hope that this young child grows up and makes the best of their life and makes the best, much like I have. Um, it's heartbreaking. There's a GoFundMe set up. If you guys want to check it out, uh, we'll put some links in the show notes. Um, I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible. Find us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Collier Landry. The film A Murder in Mansfield is available on Investigation Discovery, Discovery Plus, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio in association with rsa entertainment please visit mpmpodcast.com to show your support today